Psalm 89 is written to reconcile theology with experience. A crisis has occurred, and Ethan the Ezraite, a contemporary of Solomon, tries to reconcile his theology with what he is experiencing. His theology affirms the covenant God made with David. In 2 Samuel 7, 12-17, God promised David that he would have a descendant who would always reign over the people of Israel. However, the Davidic monarch is at a crossroad. Solomon's son has taken the throne, created a civil war, and split the kingdom. It appears as if God's promise is about to fail. How can Ethan reconcile theology with experience? And much like Ethan, we have our own moments where we have to reconcile our theology with our own experiences. And so we're going to work our way over the next several weeks through Psalm 89 to learn how to reconcile theology with experience. Now, in verses 1 through 18, we're going to look at the affirmations and attributes. Verses 1 and 2 will be praise. Verses 3 and 4, promise. Verses 5 to 18, power. Affirmations and attributes, verses 1 through 18. Next time, we will continue our study and look at the avowal and announcement in 19 through 37. The avowal and announcement in 19 through 37. In that passage, we'll see prophecy, 19 to 27, paraphrase, 28 to 35, and promise in 36 to 37. And in our third study of this psalm, we will look at verses 38 to 52, and we will take note of the affliction and annulment the affliction and annulment. And in verses 38 to 45, we'll see the plaint, the prayer in verse 46 to 48, and then uh, some affirmations in 49 through 52. So let's begin in verse 1 and 2 as we consider the affirmations and attributes there in 1 through 18. And we're going to begin with praise. Verse 1 and 2, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever, To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Now again, Ethan is writing this. He's experienced a crisis. He has the covenant on one hand, his theology. He has his experience on the other. And verse 1 introduces us to that covenant based on God's character. He vows, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. The word loving kindness, uh, chesed, mercies, covenant love. I will sing of your covenant love, O Lord, forever. See, that was key to the covenant. A covenant always was an expression of God's love to his people. Now, his covenant love was revealed in many acts. And so he says that... uh, His mercies will be sung continually or forever to all generations throughout all history the psalmist is going to sing. Now that indicates he's worshiping. Anytime we see someone singing to God, uh, it's one aspect of worship. It's not the only aspect of worship. Usually worship enjoins three things together. Uh, There's uh, prayer, there's praise, and there's preaching. Those three aspects of worship. So as the psalmist is singing, we're worshiping, he's contemplating God's promise. And that promise of covenant, that commitment that he's made to David and to the people. Now, the vow that he makes here, I will sing, is based upon what he says in verse 2. For I have said. 
Here is the con- content of the confession. Loving kindness, faithfulness, will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness or your loving kindness. Notice the parallelism here. We have a double theme uh, of, of mercy. On the one hand, we have the chesed, the covenant love, loving kindness, is going to be built up forever. In other words, God's mercy is going to endure forever. It's going to be built up. It's going to, the word built up here means to be established, to be fixed, to be made firm. And where is God's mercy made firm? In heaven. It's grounded in the reality of where God dwells. And then he says, in the heavens, now here again, you will establish your faithfulness. Now, that idea of faithfulness is trustworthiness. And we can trust in God's mercy. Why? Because his mercy is in heaven. And because it's in heaven, it's guaranteed to be forever. So, mercy is forever. Mercy is true. So, that's the praise that Ethan begins with. Now, as he continues with his affirmations, and we'll see uh, as well some attributes of God, let's look at verses 3 to 4. The promise. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. Now notice, it's not Ethan speaking. It's now God speaking. Ethan is declaring what God has spoken to him. I have made, God has made a covenant with his chosen, with his set-apart ones, primarily being Israel. Now, the original covenant there would have begun with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, Then he says, I have sworn to David my servant. So, the Abrahamic covenant was a promise of land, seed, and blessing. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants. From those descendants, there will be one particular seed that will come. Of course, we know that's pointing to the Messiah. And I will give you a blessing. Uh, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the Gentile nations. We move forward, and then we come to the book of Deuteronomy, and we have, are given the land covenant, uh, which uh, goes through and expands on the land aspect given in the Abrahamic covenant. Now we move forward, and we come to the Davidic covenant, again, 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. And this expands on the seed aspect of that Abrahamic covenant. And so he tells David uh, that there will always be a, a king that will rule. Now David's thinking, okay, I'm just going to have one descendant next to next who's going to sit on the throne. Your throne, he says, is going to be established forever, and that promised descendant will be the seed that I promised Abraham, and he's going to reign forever. So he makes a covenant. He swore a covenant to David. Notice he calls him my servant. Now the word servant here is interesting because it indicates a vassal. Now David was the king, the king of Israel, but... He was merely a vassal or a servant to the ultimate king. So, yes, we have Yahweh, king, and we have David, his servant, serving the king as the human king, the mediator between the ultimate king and his people. And so he says, I have sworn to David my servant. Now, he declares a covenant. Now, the meaning of the word covenant is, Uh, is related to an Akkadian word rendered to 
clasp or to fetter. And so we have the idea of a bond being made between two parties. Also, the Hebrew word here for I have made a covenant literally translates I have cut a covenant. I have cut a covenant. Uh, the idea of cutting comes from the idea of the covenant ceremony where if you look at Genesis 15:9, we have a great example uh, where an animal was cut in two and then the party making the covenant passed between the two halves. Uh, when God made the covenant with Abraham, when he made the covenant with David, he made what are called unconditional covenants. Now, there are conditional covenants. A conditional covenant is, I am your God, you will do this, and I will do that, or if you don't do this, then I will do that. Okay? They're conditional. Now, a conditional covenant can be everlasting, okay? Uh, just as much as an unconditional covenant can be everlasting. And so the unconditional covenant was, I am the Lord your God, this is what I'm going to do for you, no strings attached. Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. Uh, the land covenant, unconditional. The Davidic covenant, unconditional. Okay? God promised to, something to David out of complete graciousness. And there was nothing required of David to ensure its fulfillment. God said, I will establish your seed forever. Now, again, David's interpreting this, that, okay, there's always going to be a physical descendant reigning on the throne. Of course, we know, because we have the ability to go back through the Scripture, that wasn't always the case. Uh, there was a point where, because of sin, uh, because they broke the Mosaic Covenant, God sent them into captivity for 70 years, and there ceased to be a king on the throne. Does that mean God did not keep his covenant? No. He promised a seed a particular descendant who will reign on that throne forever. What David did not truly understand or grasp at that moment is that that seed was the Messiah, Jesus, who does reign and will reign forever. And there will come a day when he returns to earth, establishes the kingdom on earth, sets up his throne, and will reign over Israel and the whole world from Jerusalem. Okay? Now, why is God able to keep this promise Go back to verse 2, because his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, has secured it in heaven. I will build up your throne. Again, build up, I will establish your throne to all generations, throughout all history. Again, based on what? God's love, God's mercy, his covenant love. Now let's move to verses 5 through 18, and uh, let's look at the power. So we've got the the uh, affirmations and act of praise and promise, and now we're going to see the power and we're going to see the attribute aspect here. Verse 5, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? And God greatly feared, uh, excuse me, a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones. And awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourselves crushed Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it, con all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm, your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day. And by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Now notice where the worship begins in verse five. It begins in heavens. The heavens will praise. They will confess. They will give thanks for your wonders, O Lord, your extraordinary acts, your miraculous works. For your faithfulness also will be celebrated in the assembly of the holy ones. Again, faithfulness is that trustworthiness, the thing that guarantees God's mercy is forever. It'll be celebrated in the congregation of the holy ones or the congregation of the set-apart ones. Now, this is not referring to believers here. It's referring to heavenly beings. So Yahweh is worshipped by the heavenly beings, the angelic beings, the seraphim, the cherubim, the archangels, and so on and so forth, in heavenly places. They worship him for his works, his miraculous works, and for his continual covenant love. Ethan has given a, been given a vision of this heavenly worship, and now in verse 6 and 7, he meditates on the, what, on what makes Yahweh unique. He asked two questions, both de- demanding the same response, no one. The first question, who among in the sky can be compared to Yahweh? In other words, there is no sun, there is no planet that is equal to Yahweh. The second question asks, who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? Sons of the mighty literally translates sons of God. Uh, again, is a reference to angels. And the answer is there is no angel, there is no divine being who is comparable to the Lord. Verse 7, therefore, the psalmist asserts that God is to be feared or to be held in reverence, greatly to be feared, held in reverence among who? Among the holy ones of heaven. All these heavenly beings are gathered around him in the heavenly court. They have a sense of awe, they have a sense of wonder, they have a sense of reverence before his holiness. Verse 8, the psalmist returns to addressing God directly as what? Lord God of hosts, Lord of the heavenly army. Who can be compared to the Lord? Who is like you, O mighty Lord? And uh, again, the answer is what? No one. God is unique. His faithfulness makes him unique. His trustworthiness. And we see God's mercy and trustworthiness in several examples. He has calmed the raging sea, the surging waves, in verse 9. He has slain Rahab, the dragon, the sea monster. He has dispersed his enemies with his mighty arm. In other words, we're seeing all of these pictures of Yahweh's sovereignty over the chaos of nature and the chaos of history. Verse 11 and 12, he confesses that God is creator. Verse 13, God is redeemer. The heavens and the earth belong to him. All of its fullness, everything that fills the heavens and the earth have been founded by God in the north and in the south. Now, those compass points are represented by Mount Tabor uh, in the south on the edge of the plain of Jezreel and Mount Hermon to the north in Lebanon, the north and the south. So from the plains of Jezreel to the uh, mountains of Lebanon, all are rejoicing in the name Yahweh. Now, 
God also reigns on his throne, verse 14. So we've got him as, as God, we have as the mighty one, as the creator, as the redeemer. Now in verse 14, he is the mighty king. And, and listen, God's rulership, his uh, sovereign authority is not capricious. It's founded on what? Well, according to verse 14, righteousness and justice. Righteousness is an obligation to obey law. Okay, God has established law and order, and he upholds that. He has also founded his reign on justice or judgment. And uh, in other words, he defines moral order. He holds us accountable to that moral order, and he judges us according to that moral order. And so now Ethan, the psalmist, responds in verse 15, uh, as he's considered God's character, uh, the mighty one, the creator, the redeemer, the king. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Now, what is the joyful sound? It's the festal shout. It's like a war cry in battle uh, or the shout of triumph over enemies. Sometimes this would be sounded in worship. And when they would hear the sound of that trump in a, in, in a uh, setting of worship, it was a celebration of God's victory over all things. And so, again, God has been victorious. And he says, blessed are the people that know the victorious nature of God. Indeed, don't we know the victorious nature of God? He has defeated sin and death, damnation, hell, lake of fire. He has victory over all of that. And in doing so, he redeems us unto himself. He not only has created us, but he recreates us. He regenerates us. And he also now is our king. The people who know the Lord in this way walk in the light of his countenance. In other words, they enjoy fellowship with him. The light of his countenance, we're standing face to face in his presence. We rejoice in his name, that personal, intimate, covenant name, Yahweh. You know, that's special that, that, you know, only throughout the scripture, the only people that could invoke God as Yahweh were those in a covenant relationship with him. That's his personal name. You know, when you have a relationship with someone, you call them by name. Now, depending on the level of relationship depends on how you address them. You know, I'm not on a first name basis with the president. I wouldn't say, hey, Joe, I would still address him as what? President. Uh, you know, if I'm dealing with a, a police officer, uh, I'm going to address him as officer. I'm not going to walk up and say, hey, so-and-so. You know, if, if I'm dealing with uh, anybody in a position of authority, I address them how? By whatever term is appropriate for their office. Even so, even down into the school system, you know, we don't address our teachers by their first names. It's Mr. So-and-so, it's Miss So-and-so, or, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, or Professor So-and-so, or Dr. So-and-so, on and on. Now, however, when I'm in an intimate personal relationship with someone, they're no longer Mr., Miss, Mrs., Dr., Professor, Officer, President, etc., etc. Now I call them by name, by their personal name. And here we can address our creator, our redeemer, our king, our mighty one as Yahweh. And we can worship him all the day long as we see in verse 14. Now, in uh, verses 17 through 18, we are given a couple reasons for why we should joyfully worship him and walk before him. First of all, he is the glory of our strength. 
literally the beauty of our strength. That word glory and beauty here is interesting because it was also used in the Old Testament to describe the festival garments they would wear uh, at the feast days. In other words, they would clothe themselves in distinct clothing that was set apart from what they wore in the ordinary times, uh, times when they weren't worshiping. They wanted their worship to be distinct, particularly on those feast days. And so, uh, you know, there's that idea of set-apartness. And, you know, for you and I, when we approach God, we don't want to approach him in in common, ordinary ways. We want to approach him and make sure that we're clothed in righteousness and in purity as we uh, come before him, because we belong to him. Next, uh, it is by God's favor that his horn is exalted. So God is the glory of our strength. Uh, Our horn, or Israel's horn in verse 17, our horn is exalted. The horn here is a synonym for strength. Our strength is exalted. Again, we don't have any strength of ourselves. Our strength comes from who? From Jesus. And so again, there is a, why are we worshiping? Because we have strength from the Messiah. And finally, verse 18 describes the shield. God is to be praised because what? He is our shield. And so as we have gone through these first 18 verses, we have seen some affirmations of praise and promise. We've seen some great attributes of God. And so as you come to a place where you're dealing with an experience and you have to reconcile that with your theology and it seemingly doesn't fit, it's not working out, begin with some affirmations, begin with some attributes. Give praise to God for who you know that he is based on the scripture. Go back and resolve yourself to accept the promises that he has given you. And then go forth and consider who God is. Redevelop. If you haven't developed one already, develop one. If you have, redevelop it. A theology of who God is. And you can begin right here. He's the mighty one. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. Uh, He's our uh, king. He's our shield, our protector, our strength, uh, and, and our glory. And as we begin to do that, it's going to begin to move us in the direction where we'll be able to reconcile a difficult experience with our theology. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, as we come before your throne of grace, we come through your son, Jesus Christ, Father, the one who gave himself for us, the one who laid down his life to redeem us and to uh, uh, recreate us and to set us apart and to uh, be a people unto himself. And so, Father, we want to give you all the praise and glory for who you are the mighty one, the king, the creator, the redeemer, the shield, the protector, the beauty. Father, all of these things, uh, you are distinct from all others. There's no one, as we've seen three times now in this psalm, there is no one like you. And so, uh, Father, I thank you for the relationship we have with you. Father, uh, we confess that we need you. We need your help, Father. Uh, Perhaps we're even now, someone uh, is dealing with an experience, Father, that isn't reconciling with what they know or think they know. It's not reconciling with what they, uh, their, their theology, and uh, they're struggling, Father. Uh, they're teetering on the brink uh, spiritually. And so, Father, I pray that you will use this psalm and uh, even what the, the foundation we've laid here uh, today to uh, bolster them up, Father, to give them a, a starting point 
to reconcile their theology and their experiences. Father, uh, perhaps uh, there will be a time in the future when we'll face the same thing, and so I pray that we can come back to Psalm 89 and get a firm foundation and get the proper steps uh, to do that. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, in those uh, experiences which we've doubted you, in those experiences in which we have uh, uh, struggled and uh, given up on our theology or cast it aside uh, and embraced humanism or naturalism or some other ism other than you. Forgive us of that, Father. We confess and forsake it. Lord, I pray that you would continue to guide us and lead us into your truth. Pray that you'd keep us from the uh, from temptation. Pray that you'd keep us uh, safe from the one who seeks to destroy us, the one that goes about like a roaring lion. And so, Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory. We commit these things to you. Amen.